Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the ego of all the other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Joke Moniac. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. Joke Moniac, or Joe Pontiac. (laughs) I saw. Just in interrupt my intro, why don't you? Email. Hey, I just wanted to, just in case people didn't know what I was saying. Today we are going to be returning to our world building series. I'm really excited about today. I feel like, I mean, I think we mentioned this in the actual interview, but I feel like this part of world building is something that for those first sitting down to create a world often gets overlooked. But we're talking about the skies today. And by skies, we mean sun, moon, and stars. And joining us, we have the Rich Baker, game designer, author. He has a plethora of things on his credentials. Oh, yeah. We'll get into that. Pick up a Dungeon Master's book from past like three or four editions, and it's probably got his name <laughs> exactly, on it somewhere. Exactly. But before we do get into that, Neil, we have some five-star reviews. So the first one is from none other than Lord Hermes, <laughs> who has graced us with a five-star review. I mean, I'm appreciative that Lord Hermes has even taken the time to listen to our podcast. But not seriously. But not only that, they have given us five-star review entitled "Awesome Podcast." Thanks for all the great ideas. Done. Nice and quick. Succinct, it's very perfect. much like Lord Hermes would be. I imagine he listens yes. to our podcast at two times the speed, like like a champion would, <laughs> like I do. <laughs> oh my gosh! You listen to things two times the speed. I two have actually times. successfully listened to an entire podcast at three times speed. That's crazy. That does. I don't even think my phone does that, but I guess well done to you. Are you Lord Her- <laughs> Hermes? Are you Lord Hermes? <laughs> Our next one it comes from the Lich King, uh, or just Lich King, and it's entitled System Neutral Advice for DMs and GMs Alike. This is a great podcast. I have created my own homebrew fantasy system and world. Keep up the good work, and I love the raw, real monsters episodes. So thank you so yeah. much, Lich King. We really appreciate that. And with that, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? The flat meat back on the menu, boys. <laughs> So for the meet today, we are honored to be joined by Rich Baker, author and game designer who has worked on many, many settings in D&D throughout many editions. He has created the Primeval Thule campaign setting through Sasquatch Games, of which he is the founder of. He is also working on an upcoming new sci-fi series with the first book of that series being entitled Valiant Dusk. And many, many more things. Go look it up. There's a whole list of things you can look at for what Rich Baker has worked on. But without any further ado, Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I think we'd like to start off with just uh, asking you a few questions. And the first thing we'd like to ask you about is just, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I've been working uh, as a game designer since uh, 1991. I joined uh, TSR Incorporated in Wisconsin. That's how far back I go in (laughs) in this business. Very first thing I published for uh, TSR was the Rock of Brawl, a Spelljammer uh, source book and adventure. During my time in the business, uh, let me see, I worked on things like the Birthright campaign setting. I ran a lot of the Forgotten Realms 3rd edition product line. I worked on Dark Sun in 4th edition. In 5th edition, I've worked on the adventure that's in the starter set. I worked on the Princess of the Apocalypse 
Elemental Evil adventure. Uh, that was uh, with my outfit, Sasquatch. And uh, we also uh, created the Primeval Fool campaign setting, which is something I'm pretty proud of. Uh, fun little Cthulhu versus Conan setting, as we like to call it. <laughs> I also work as a writer. I've been... Uh, I've written a number of Forgotten Realms novels, and uh, I have a new series uh, starting up with Tor Books, starring a character by the name of Sikander North, which is great uh, military science fiction. So if you want to read about uh, battleships with rail guns and lasers, that's where that story's going, and I'm really excited about it. Fantastic. So you had already kind of mentioned it, but is there anything else that you're currently working on that you want to highlight? <laughs> oh, <laughs> gosh, thank you. I almost forgot. Uh also, with the, the Sasquatches, uh, me and my partners, Dave and Steve, are working on bringing out a new version of the Alternity science fiction role-playing game. I worked on the original Alternity back at TSR with Bill Slavisek, and here we are almost 20 years later, and uh, we decided, you know what, we, we think there's a market for a good, broad-spectrum science fiction game that isn't necessarily tied to a specific setting that can cover a lot of different ground for people, and so we have a, a brand new Alternity 2017 on the way, and uh, with a little luck, we'll be starting that Kickstarter in, oh, maybe about six weeks or so, sometime around the end of February. Perfect. And if they want to check that Kickstarter out, they can go to your Twitter, and I'm sure that'll be have updates on that sure. on there. So Follow uh, Sasquatch Game Studio on there Facebook. We do a lot of our postings through our, our Facebook page. And we have a website, SasquatchGameStudio.com. We're around. Definitely go and check that out, yeah. So, Rich, here's what I'd like to ask you. I'm interested to hear if it started as a as a game designer or as a player or as a DM, but how did you first get started in tabletop role-playing games? Well, I mean, certainly as a kid, I, I played a lot of D&D. I was kind of exactly the right age for the first big wave of, of D&D to kind of come around. So, gosh, late 70s, I was in middle school, uh, which I guess kind of <laughs> dates me a little bit, sorry, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I remember going down to the hobby store and seeing this great book called The Monster Manual. It had all these really funky creatures mm -hmm. on the cover and got hooked and, and played D&D all through, uh, all through uh, high school and into college and even a little bit on and off again during my Navy days. And when I was getting out of the Navy, I decided as long as I was sending resumes off to everybody, I mean, I was sending out like 50 different resumes, I, I sent one to TSR Incorporated. And sure enough, they happened to be looking for designers at the time. They sent me back a design test. Uh, which is basically they sent me a, a complete Vikings handbook and told me, hey, write us a 2,000-word encounter using this material. And I was like, awesome, I'm up at the complete <laughs> Vikings handbook. <laughs> yeah. But they must have liked, the, they must have liked the, the, the writing audition because they brought me in for an interview, and I wound up uh, starting there in That's October awesome. 91. Hmm. I love that your start was like, it's all uphill from here. Like, it couldn't get any any better. It can only get better. I already got a free book out of this. <laughs> well, next up, we have a surprise question. And surprise, I made this question. So it'll be tailored specifically for you. Okay. On a side note, uh, Patreon Dragons, if you want to head over to the forums, you can make these surprise questions that we'll ask. But... Given my personal experience with you, I would like to know, if you were an evil genius taking over the world, how would you do it? <laughs> if I were an evil genius taking over the world, oh goodness. I have to say, uh, technology companies seems to be the way to go these days. <laughs> uh, I mean, have you seen, uh, you know, Amazon's getting ready to, to you know, go to drone delivery yep. to your doorstep, right? <laughs> People don't even have to leave their houses anymore, right? It's like, that's... If that's not a plan to take over the world, man, then, you know, <laughs> Jeff Bezos, I don't know what he's doing. I mean, come on. Is that your prediction, then? Look out for Amazon. Be careful. Yeah, I'm just saying, I, for one, welcome <laughs> our new robotic overlords. 
Just as a plug, if you want to find out more about Rich's ideas on how to take over the world, you should check out a fun little game mm-hmm. called Ultimate Scheme, which I got to play at a catacon. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much for bringing that up. I'm very happy with it. We're, In fact, we have our, uh, our expansion. We're working on it right now. It's awesome. uh, plan number B. Oh, so good. Plan number B. I like it. That should be, uh, we should be getting that out to our backers maybe in about another uh, month or five weeks, hopefully awesome. right before the, the Kickstarter. Fantastic. So let's get into what we came here to discuss today. The topic that we are discussing is we're doing our world building series. And today we're kind of going to talk about the skies and we're not talking about the skies as far as like clouds and things like that. We're talking about go further up. We're talking about celestial bodies, sun, moon, stars, and creating those for a homebrew world, the importance of those, the effects of those. And so to open this up, I think that's not always the first thing that comes to mind for someone making a homebrew world is, oh, let me get into the creation of the stars. Let me get into the creation of the sun. I think sun's pretty important, but I think sometimes it just goes like, oh, it's one sun, cool. And then later on, you might start to question if there's differences. So, Rich, let me ask you first, like, as far as in a homebrew setting, as far as starting a, a new campaign setting, like, What is the importance of the skies, the celestial bodies in a world? I will say this, the the importance certainly, it's an opportunity. It's one that you don't necessarily have to exploit. Let's be clear, right? I mean, a world's a pretty big place. And if your campaign is really about going into dungeons and killing stuff and you don't really spend a lot of time outside the dungeon, then how do you know (laughs) if the sun's shining? (laughs) Right? Yeah. So... It's, it's a world-building opportunity, I think, and it's a great way to develop some campaigns. It's, it's, it's not clearly necessary for others. Mm. You, know, you mentioned, like, the sun, right? And it's, sure, we can assume, unless otherwise stated, let's assume that it works like, like, like our, our sun, planet, yeah. right? Right, you know, you get about 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, and that's probably in the tropics, and, and in the winter you have a little bit less, in the summer you have a little more. Hours of daylight, that is, not, you know, the day doesn't change length, but you could do that if you really want to do something wacky. Why not? There's been some very great, you know, some great story premises that have played around with with even just the idea of, like, the sun. So, for example, Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows stories was based on the premise that, hey, here's a world that is tidally locked. So one side always faces day, the other yeah. side always faces night. What lives on the night side? You know, stuff that doesn't like daylight. In the Jack of Shadows story, it's actually the case that the daylight side was essentially technological hmm. and scientific, and the night side was uh, magical and occult. Two whole different worlds, yeah. Yeah, to the point where people who looked at the day side kind of like, well, there's legends of like, you know, people having like crazy occult stuff on the night side, but who cares? They're, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know science. <laughs> That's amazing. I think you make a good point too with the fact that, you know, when creating your homebrew world, like it is, it's totally fine too to assume it works like our planet. It works like Earth. Not something I'm interested in getting into. That is completely fine. But once you start getting into, oh, but what if it doesn't? What if there are two suns? What if there is no sun? What if there are more than one moon? Whatever it is, you start to bring up these questions, especially the more you look into the actual science of what the effects of 
the sun on our world is, the moon on our world is, the stars, all that kind of things. Once you take away or add more uh, or change the way that they work in some way, you affect the whole planet. Like you said, a world that doesn't rotate, that planet is completely changed because of that and different cultures and different just atmospheres around the world come up because of that. Yeah, it's so easy to make it foreign by just even changing if you're even to use our solar system as like a guideline but then just like shift where the earth is a little bit and just thinking about the concept of like daytime is an additional six hours the mechanical implications immediately change like you're gonna have to sleep during the day and like how do you accomplish that uh you blew you already blew my mind rich just like just like with the smallest of <laughs> tweaks and how foreign that could be and because i mean you're right i think our initial gut reaction would be like oh we're gonna put two suns and we're gonna have it tidally locked and we're gonna do this but just even picking one aspect of it and changing it a little bit yeah. still makes it just as foreign you know it's funny i mentioned the science fiction thing a minute ago for the the sikander north books that i'm doing for tour in the second book i'm working on now i introduce they spent a little time on a world that is actually a moon of a gas giant. And I did a little looking up on how that works, and I realized, okay, moons of gas giants are tidally locked, just like we described. So if you look at a planet, uh, pardon me, a moon like uh, Ganymede, for example, the biggest moon of, of Jupiter, it's tidally locked, and it orbits Jupiter in about eight days. Well, if it's tidally locked, which means that it, the, it's always facing towards Jupiter, when it is rotating, uh, when it's orbiting Jupiter, that's essentially the day of Ganymede that any particular point is going to be facing the sun for about four days of that of that orbit and facing away from the sun for about four days of that orbit. So, in essence, day and night on Ganymede uh, last about 96 hours each. Hmm. And if you were visiting there from Earth, of course you'd be like, well, that's great, I can't stay up for 96 hours. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the people who had colonized that, that particular moon, you know, had to make accommodations to the fact that, hey, we have... We're just going to turn all the lights on really bright, you know, about every 16, you know, about every eight, you know, the 16 hours during the night to encourage people to get up and, and like do things that need to get done because you can't just sleep for until the sun comes up. Yeah, that's like that's like interesting because it's like it's a whole culture that has <laughs> they have to figure out some way to make there be some sort of schedule. If not, it would just be like, you don't know when people are asleep, when people are awake, just everybody would kind of be yeah. doing their own kind of thing. Uh, I mean, we're, we're blessed to be on a planet that for most of the planet, we don't have to worry about that. It's, it's pretty, Oh, it's daytime. <laughs> it's nighttime. We go to sleep during the nighttime. We stay up during the daytime. Yeah. But yeah, if the days were longer or shorter to the point of that, it would just, it would make things a lot more difficult and society would have to try and figure out some way to schedule things. Many years ago, I happened to visit uh, Fairbanks, Alaska mm -hmm. in June. Yep. And of course, the sun doesn't go down in Fairbanks in June. <laughs> <laughs> and what you find is that if you're staying in a hotel up there, all the hotels have these super heavy blinds. I mean, like crazy heavy blinds so that you know, if, if it's, you know, midnight and you're ready to go to sleep, you can actually darken the room. Yeah. The other thing I thought was, like, using the that moon as an example and having a race that's always lived there and they don't know any different, if they were to be adapted to the concept of staying awake for four days and then going to sleep for four days, and then how either how foreign <laughs> that would be if they came here or 
like it, they could then easily be exploited on the flip side if someone has found this world and like oh we got four days to steal everything awesome and <laughs> but just thinking of how easily just that one concept also makes the races that live there foreign i believe that it's legends now that it's no longer canon in star wars but i believe that the planet ryloth where twilix came from in star wars used to be that one side was always nighttime one side was always daytime and I believe that in that lore, that old lore, that the dark side of the planet was also, like, always freezing cold and, like, pretty much uninhabitable. And so if you traveled there, you were, I mean, you probably had to wear some sort of, like, suit to protect yourself from the extreme cold. But it would just be this frozen tundra of land. And, like, you could dual have that kind of thing going on, too, with a, a planet that is affected like that. And it doesn't even have to be, like, a non-moving planet. But if it's moving slower, the dark side may be colder for a longer periods of time and the light side hotter, whatever it is. Yeah, you know, I just have another example. Uh, and I'm, I might garble this. I'll have to check it. But uh, <laughs> Stephen Baxter uh, has actually published a couple of books in the last few years. The first one, I believe, was called Proxima about people who settled uh, Proxima Centauri. It's a planet that is tidally locked to its sun. It is exactly as you say. You know, once you start getting over to the dark side, yeah, it gets cold really quick. And what what are some other, like, effects that the sun would have beyond just, like, day and night? I mean, like, cold cold is definitely one. If you add more suns, you could very much go the Tatooine route to go back to sure. Star Wars and more suns equals hotter planet does that mean your planet is hot all over like is it a desert planet i didn't even like consider this to be honest that's how it just like went over my head but rich you brought up oh well what if people are in your world are just going through dungeons they don't know if the sun even shines like what if they're you're on a planet without <laughs> a sun i mean the a planet without a sun one would be freezing cold but complete darkness all the time to me that sounds like a terrifying planet <laughs> uh to try and survive on and what creatures survive there would be just they would have to be some monsters that would be really scary and would totally kill your party if you come across them <laughs> uh, it's funny uh, uh, you know once you, that that reminds me of a uh... Uh, William Hope Hodgson's novel, The Nightlands, which, by the way, is in some ways a terrible read, right? It's a, it's a slog of a novel. It was written 100 years ago, right? I mean, it's got the sensibilities of a, of a novel mm -hmm. from, what, 1899 yeah. or whatever it is. But the premise is, is fascinating, right? All of humanity is reduced to essentially living in one fortified city uh, because the Earth, it's so long, it's so far in the future, the sun has gone out. Oh, wow. And monsters roam everywhere else. Yeah. Right? And yeah, you know, that's a fantastic, you know, D&D &D setting right there. It's like, okay, you guys have one city-state that you're defending. And, and because the city-state needs things that are out there in the darkness, someone's got to go out and get them. And that's where the monsters run. Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a fascinating setting to play with, right, right there. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It doesn't have to be the absence of a sun, but it could be, like you just stated, like a sun that's gone dead. It's no longer shining light. It's no longer producing heat. That would be... A fascinating world to to role play through yeah because then you're wholly dependent on the world and what it offers i mean even for heat any form yeah. of like life has to be dependent on the world and so you had mentioned no sun and it could even be one that's just a terrifying place to live on because it could be volcanic activity that's why there's enough heat that sustains life and everything like that but then that you know that's not a great alternative because <laughs> then there's volcanoes <laughs> everywhere but yeah you know, it's a way to get 
I mean, air quote, get by on the fact that you no longer have a son. And I wonder even what the cultures in that world would be be like. I imagine that they would worship, you know, a god of fire because fire would be so important to them for heat, for life. Fire is life. Yeah, exactly. It would like so they would of course worship that. But I imagine too that they would also worship the god of darkness as well, possibly just out of fear, but they would still worship that god. And these different things just affect so much with the cultures that would be living there. You know, if you're not populating that world with fire giants and drow, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're just not you're just not doing it right. I mean that that sounds like a pretty cool setting. Now, that does. Now I want the epic level campaign to re- be restarting the sun. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, interesting, too, because, I mean, our sun also gives off different degrees and different types of, of radiation. And, of course, that's not something that we have to worry about going outside and, oh, my gosh, like I walk outside and I turn into some some freakish mutant. But in a... In a world with a different type of sun that gives off maybe a a stronger level of radiation or different types of radiation, like you could create a world that is very Fallout-esque, very apocalyptic setting like because of a sun that gives off a dangerous radiation that does create strange mutants and I mean now we're getting into gamma world territory but that is that is a world you could create. Yeah, actually, you know, when you were talking about that, the thought that occurred to me was uh, the Second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, Stephen R. Donaldson's stories, right? That Thomas Covenant comes back to the land, and in the the second series, he's dealing with this thing called the Sunbane. And the thing about the Sunbane was, if if you were standing uh, on open ground when the sun came up, the first touch of the sun, you got turned into a monster, right? You got turned into something horrible, right? And, And so... Yeah, I understand that you know the the Thomas Covenant books aren't aren't everyone's taste, but the but the second trilogy was I thought a brilliant bit of world building and a really strange, bizarre idea that you would have these you know depending on what color the sun came up, you would have these. It's a desert sun. It's a it's a pestilence sun. It's a fertility sun, but the fertility sun is awful because it makes everything grow like crazy. So, but it was just all these things in succession. People are trying to survive this world that's gone mad. And, oh, yeah, if you uh, get caught out in the open when the sun comes up, you turn into a monster. So, so once again, you know, with fantasy, uh, with D&D, with high magic, right, you can kind of do all sorts of fun stuff with... It doesn't have to be actual real radiation, right? It could be, it could be a magical curse, yep. you know, a blight, something that, that affects people. I like that, too, because I think we went from that dark planet where the absence of a sun or a dead sun makes us in our minds go, oh, man, yeah, the sun's great. I wouldn't want to live without it. But as soon as you make the sun dangerous or give more suns, it's like the sun is something that people on a planet could very much fear. And like, yeah, if the sun comes up, you're a monster. We're throwing out references like crazy, but there's that Riddick movie where once the sun comes up, you're you're dead. Is it pitch black? You're dead. Oh, no. Sorry. burn and you're gone whichever whichever riddick movie it is they all blur together just, to me you, to be honest you, you just blew my mind because i was wanting to mention pitch black earlier so bad because there's yeah. the multiple suns and then the whole world goes dark and all the monsters come out but then i didn't even realize that in the second one the chronicles of riddick where the sun is just as bad and they have the prison yes. planet there because if you're out when the sun shows up you're just gone yeah but imagine living in a world like that you have to hide underground or you have to like race around the planet to avoid the sun like that that's crazy (laughs) 
Well, that would be, I mean, and that was the other thing I had thought about a tidally locked planet was that if one side is so hot that it's uninhabitable to a degree, and then the other side is so cold that it's uninhabitable, you almost have this ring that is okay. You have to live on the, in between those. Yeah. And then the, the other one would be if it was still that extreme, and then you would almost have like a society that moves with the rotation of the planet because it's the only strip of the planet that they can survive in. One thing we haven't even mentioned yet, I think, Rich, you did mention it a little bit, uh, but the sun also dictates the type of plant growth on the planet. And so the more suns you add, the hotter the sun is, the colder the sun, no sun, it's also going to determine a lot of like what kind of foliage is on your homebrew world, uh, whether it's going to be dense jungles or no jungles or whatever it is. You know, plants are green on our planet because... Green happens to be the optimal color for harvesting energy out of sunlight, right? If you change the spectrum of the sunlight just a little bit, plants would probably have evolved to be a somewhat different color, which I guess for the case of your D&D campaign is really the definition of window dressing, (laughs) right? If the the players actually notice notice that or or think about that more than about once after you mention it to them, I'd be surprised, right? But, you know... It's kind of cool for you, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. The sky's purple, the grass is orange. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that thing that the DM gets really excited about. and just like, and you look around, and the trees have blue leaves, and the players go, oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, guys, it's cool. <laughs> can I or can I not loot the trees? Yeah. <laughs> can I kill the trees? No? Okay, whatever. So we've talked a lot about the sun already and the effects the effects of the sun and adding more suns, taking away a sun with a dead sun. Uh, what about the moon? Like what kind of things can we do in a fantasy world with a with a moon that can change up the way that a world is affected? The first thing I thought about uh, as regards the moon, uh, the moons, uh, I thought about the Dragonland setting. The world of Kryn has has three moons. And the interesting thing about that from a setting building standpoint is that each of the moons was associated with a different type of magic. When different moons were at different points in their waxing or waning cycle, the wizards who were associated with that, with that moon, with that particular school of spellcasting, got stronger. So there were actually mechanical effects, to put it in like third edition terms, right? That, that if uh, your moon was waxing, you got like plus one, plus two caster levels. And the bad guys got penalties to saving throws against your spells. Uh, if your moon was waning, you got a little bit weaker. And then they also uh, built a chart which would show like when different moons were in conjunction, uh, so to speak, that that also had, had an effect. So there was a little bit of tracking involved, but I always felt that it was a, a fascinating touch for the storytelling to say, hey, this is, you know, guys, this is not a good time for me to storm the evil castle, right? <laughs> the, 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 the celestial forces are kind of aligned against me. You know, I'm thinking maybe... Next week looks better to me. Yeah, you, you, know? you get your players interested in, of all things, a calendar. <laughs> like They're like, no, 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 it's the second of the month and the moon is at this phase. I cannot. Like <laughs> They're sitting there with a, their, their monthly calendar in front of them and they're just, they're totally like focused on that. I like that aspect, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially in a world where you might have the, you know, as we used to refer to them, right, the, the, the scry and fry tactics right it's like well if we can go hit them anytime we want why not wait till the day when i'm feeling my oats right you know that's why not right that's that's kind of cool and the bad guys you know same thing hey 
uh, we got to go take this guy out. And, you know, darn it, you know, his Moons Ascendant right now. He's going to be tougher. Yeah. The other fun thing about Moons is is just using them as, like, adjuncts to your campaign world, I think, and saying if you want to put weird, strange yeah. things that don't really fit in your on your setting but you want nearby. Put them on the moon? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Is I mean, it inhabited? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, once again, a, a world's a pretty big place, and it's already a fantastic world. So if you want to do something really strange, you probably could do it already on your own de- on your own planet. Yeah. But if you want to also segregate some of the weirdness and kind of say, no, this is the place where the people on the planet look at and say, okay, we live in a pretty strange place, but that place is really strange. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea of even taking that, too, and having it be introduced to your players through stories and legends of these creatures that live on the moon. And maybe, like, on certain nights you can see shadows created by them. But it comes down to just stories and legends that the players are asking, like, are those true? Or is this just what the people here believe? Are there creatures on the moon? Are there these giant worms uh, made of fire that live in the sun? Like, is that true? Or is that just what the people of this world believe? We did a little bit of that in the uh, the third edition Forgotten Realms campaign setting. We actually, you know, took that book, which is already so jam-packed full of everything about, about Faerun, and we, we made we made a page and uh, we we made a little page in the outline and said we're also going to talk a little bit about what people think about is there something on the moon yep. what lives there and what do people think about it? Well, I think it's close enough that people's concept of the moon is just a place that could potentially you could get to, especially when you have like a high level magic of any kind. It's just like well yeah, of course hand you can almost hand wave the concept of just going to the moon. I feel like you know, with spelljammer and stuff like that, you start to get into some nuances and you need some magical component that truly explains why you could travel in space, but like the moon is something we could see. Like let's say you can use a telescope and theoretically I can see it so I can teleport there. Because because magic or I mean, if I can travel to another plane of existence, why can't I go to the big thing, the big rock in the sky? You know, the very old uh, Ultima computer games uh, had a moon gate mechanic where as the time went by in the game and diff- the moon you know, went into different phases, mystic gates would open at different parts of the of the of the world. And it was fascinating because in some cases it was just a handy shortcut like, OK, I can. I can save myself a long, long walk by using the moon gate to go to the spot I want to get to. Or in other cases, it was, hey, I can only get to this spot where I must go for my quest when the moon gate is at this proper phase and I've found the right way to get there. So so tying something like a teleportation network or a, a transport system to the phases of the moon, I think is, a, is also a very fun touch, uh, especially if you want to put teleportation magic in the hands of your players but control where they go and when they go. One of the things that I thought of with the moon that like our moon on our earth dictates the tides of the earth because of the gravitational pull. Now, I think any scientist listening to this podcast is going to know we're not scientists because I don't know if what I'm saying, <laughs> how factually correct it would be. But hey, you're creating a fantasy world, right? To me, like I'm like, oh, throw like 10 moons to a planet. And what are the tides looking on that planet? How chaotic are the tides on that planet? And just the effects on that planet because of that. I I imagine a world that the oceans are just constantly rising and lowering and what kind of civilizations have to be built because of that. They have to build places that are either super high up on top of mountains to survive or things that can cities that can be okay once the waters rise and cover them completely. Or even frankly, just, you know, one, one big moon that's very close, right? If, 
if our moon was half the distance that it is right now, the effect of its gravity would be four times mm. greater, right? It's a it's one of those uh, you know inverse squared things. Imagine tides uh, a tidal range that's about four times higher than today, and there's already places like out here, like along the Alaskan coast, you know, where there's like 25, 30 foot tidal ranges. You imagine that as a hundred foot tidal range, and and that's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> or things like tidal bores, like the uh, Bay of Fundy, you know, where when the tide comes in, I mean, it comes in fast and dangerous. And you really have to be paying attention to where you are when, when it does start to come in, right? Or you, you know, might get stranded or you might get drowned, right? I mean, so that's that's all good fun. And beyond drowning, beyond the, like, tides coming in, like, I then go, well, what kind of creatures come in with the tide? What kind of aquatic sure. monsters do you have, Shahugan, that use those tides to be like, time to raid this place, time to go in and get as much as we can from this place, capture the people for food, whatever it is. Like, what kind of monsters come along with the rising of the tide as well. Exactly. Fascinating stuff. Or we could just go watch Star Wars and watch how the Death Star messes everything up. (laughs) 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 One other thing I thought of with the moon is we talked about a sun coming up and turning people into monsters. Like with werewolves, if you have a planet with more than one moon, you are having a planet with more than one, a couple days where it's like full moon. And so what if you just have a planet with tons of moons and it's always a full moon that makes the night a terrifying time. (laughs) And so you have people just boarding (laughs) up their doors and their windows because as soon as night comes, it's werewolf time. (laughs) No, that's great. I like that. That's a, you know, some of the fun of the werewolves is also the fact that sometimes they're not werewolves, right? Sometimes they're average people. So would there be like different moons for different types of lycanthropes? Uh, like, okay. Yeah. You know, like the, the red moon is for werewolves. werewolves. Yes. Yeah. That would be, that would be a really interesting dynamic, especially if you go into like, yeah, the werewolves come out and they're going to rip you apart, but maybe the werebears are, are more helpful. And so when, the blue moon comes up and the werebears are out like that's a that's a good night like we know that we're protected better or you know you have a block party you know have your kegger whatever you're gonna do exactly those bears know how to party well if we tie it back to some of the early ideas we had if you essentially have a scenario where it's going to last for multiple days that could and our bear wolf combination that could either mean like a four-day party or a four-day travesty because now instead of one night it's 96 six hours where you have to deal with the fact that there are werewolves everywhere (laughs) (laughs) mashing all of these ideas together yes so that's a a lot of uh, just some thoughts about the moon let's move on to our our final area that we wanted to just discuss is the creation of the stars and the effect of stars and switching things up whatever it is like let's talk about the stars a little bit you know it's funny about uh you guys did prep me a little bit for the. Uh, you, gave, you gave me gave me some ideas like, hey, here's what the topic. So I did do a little thinking and research yep. here and there. And the weird one that appeared to me uh, occurred to me about stars was uh, astrology, hmm. right? Okay, we have a lot of fun reading our horoscopes, right? And you know, today is a seven. Your lucky numbers are this, this, and this. Okay, okay. I'm not sure what I'm just supposed Go to do buy with a that. Scratcher. But thanks. By <laughs> yeah, yeah. <buy> scratch. <laughs> you know, there has certainly been you know on our own planet, right? Cultures that have been extremely invested in in astrology. You know, little known fact, right? Like the the three wise men that appeared in the uh, the Christmas story were probably sages from ancient Persia, uh, because the well uh, Chaldea or Babylon, right, that area, uh, because those people were nuts for watching the stars and actually built huge facilities for for tracking the movements of the stars and, and coming coming up with you know literally cat you know horoscopes were a big deal, right? They 
what the alignment of the skies was the moment somebody was born uh, was thought to have a real, real lasting impact on what kind of person they were, you know, what their fortunes would be in life, what sort of personality they would have. There was actually, a long time ago, a RPG that did something with this called Dragon Quest. Uh, it was by uh, the company SBI. I, I actually, I was just checking this a few minutes ago. It was published in 1980, but I remember I had a copy of it. And there was a, a, a small chapter in there de uh, devoted to horoscopes. You would actually roll your characters, you know, like birth horoscope so that you would that game also was essentially a kitchen sink game meaning if they, <laughs> if they could think of it they put a system in there for it but it's just a fascinating idea right that you could actually tell people hey here's a special uh set of feats you get yeah. or fate points or something that are tied to are literally tied to your astrology yeah, you're born during this yeah so you get yeah. a plus one to charisma or whatever it is plus five hit points it's a little it's a little thing that does add a lot of interest into it yeah i like that a lot or you know if you had like uh days that are supposed to be lucky or fortunate you would tell player hey guess what today's a you know the the stars are right for you you have three re-rolls today yeah you know use roll them wisely advantage yeah. or the opposite this is an unlucky day <laughs> the stars are not aligned roll with disadvantage for today what well, i think it goes back to like you know with the calendar thing an interesting way that characters or npcs whatever could be tied to each other because then they both have that yeah, and it's just, and it is a small thing that could turn into a much larger role play based connection because it's like, oh, you were born during that time too. <laughs> I mean, the mechanical of re-rolls. It's a talking but... point, right? Yeah. <laughs> I saw you re-rolled the day. Hey. No, just... <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought about with stars is uh, the constellations. I mean, we have constellations in our world that have stories and myths behind them. I know for me, I have created like a constellation chart for my world, and it was a fantastic, it was just a lot of fun, first of all, but it also allowed me to put stars in the sky and constellations that, one, were tied to stories of my world's history that I already had, and then I was able to create some new constellations that I was like, I don't, I don't know what the story is here, but now I'm like, okay, now I would like to figure out what the stories are that are tied with this constellation. And I think that's a great thing for the DMs out there who are making homebrew worlds to create constellations that have legends and myths and stories from history tied to the stars in the sky. Oh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely believe that. I I actually wrote an epic destiny for 4th edition D&D that was essentially that thing that, hey, what's your, what's your you know, level 30 exit from the world? Dude, you get to be a constellation, yeah. right? You know, because it just feels like an epic thing. And we've seen it, you know, and you know, done in, in you know different movies and stories. But it just feels like a, a really cool thing to do. But yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, we talk about how uh, DMs can get their players in love with their world, and what greater thing to like end a campaign and be like, and you get to become a constellation. Here's a piece of paper. Draw out the constellation for me, and I will add it into my sky. That is something that is fantastic. And then in future campaigns, you can have a scene where their future PCs that have no connection are looking up at a sky, and you just briefly do that. Do that mention like we we talked about with like the trees being blue, but you mention a constellation pass in the sky that is of their PC and you've got them hooked you've got them like all excited because they're like that's my guy that's my guy in the sky that's awesome it's pretty cool if you can say hey orion is now rising in the sky it's very bright and you're like dude i played yeah, orion exactly <laughs> that was my guy i killed like eight dragons let me it was tell you awesome. a story about that belt man <laughs> <laughs> 
the other thing I thought real quick was that if you have those really deeply established lores and you know, the two big ones for us would be like the Big Dipper, Orion, and you, the Ursa Minor, Ursa Major. But then if you were to take part of it away, and what are what does that mean for that lore, and what does your world create behind yeah. it, and what could that possibly mean for something greater? Like if the bear is now missing its head, like is that a real thing? Is that like what are the implications? Yeah, and in a world of magic, like who's to say that a whole slew of stars, a whole constellation itself, doesn't disappear for some nefarious reasons in one night's time, and why? What's the mystery there? That's a whole quest for your players to try and figure out. Dragonlance, once again, used uh, a lot of the, the consolation stuff. Uh, once again, it's kind of window dressing. I, I don't think there were mechanical effects for for that, but like when uh, when the gods were missing, right, the constellations that were associated with the gods were actually missing too, if I remember right. That's and, cool. And as the gods slowly came back to Kryn, right, the new constellations kept appearing that were... Uh, you know, kind of signaling the the world was changing, and I thought that was that was kind of a nice. That touch. was really cool having the stars be connected to certain gods. I like that. I like, and that makes sense. And the freaking out that would happen in a world when a deity that everybody worships, the night comes and those constellations are gone. Like Ooh. the chaos <laughs> that would happen because why why are the stars gone? What's happened? The gods dead? What's what's going on? unanswered prayers then coming and oh man that's a that's a great story hook to be explored when i worked on the uh 4e warlock and we were creating different types of warlocks so we had the infernal warlock and we had the fey warlock and we had the star warlock the thing i wanted to call upon there is i wanted to draw on a tradition that felt like it had a bit of real world teeth to it without uh without going all cthulhu all the time which the star warlock kind of wound up sort of leaning that way anyway but uh the initial initial conception was that in in Earth and our in uh, celestial navigation we actually have a list of uh, what are called navigable stars. So there's 57 navigable stars, which are stars that are bright enough and easily located enough and far enough away from other bright stars that they become visible at a time when you can still see the horizon and can thus easily get a sextant reading hmm. on them. Because stars that are really you know that are that come out later on when it's it's too dark to see the horizon, it's really hard to actually to actually shoot the star. And many of those star names are all derived from Arabic astronomy. So many of the star names that we're familiar with, things like Deneb and Altair and Rigel and Betelgeuse and uh, Zubul <laughs> Nagubi, which is my favorite, because <laughs> that's a mouthful. Yes, All these names come from a particular language and tradition, and I felt that was a, a great bit of lore to start, you know, kind of uh, to, to call together something and say, all right, here's, you could actually have individual, uh, so when we actually were writing the Warlock spells, we were saying, okay, this is the, you know, Shadow of Hadar spell, right, and actually using real world star names and dropping them in there to try and build a tradition that, that people would maybe recognize or say, this feels a little familiar to me, but I'm not sure why. Because it's a it's a neat little body of lore that I didn't think anybody else had done much with in RPG design. So some of those got changed because the names uh, were were throwing people a little <laughs> bit too much. So sorry, Zubal Nagubi oh. didn't get in in the final draft. But oh, that would take a while to uh, remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> but there's others that are still there. So if you check like the 4E Warlock spells, you'll find a few 
a few of the spells still have the names of recogni- you know, recognizable star names in them. That's awesome. So with that, we're going to go ahead and start wrapping things up. And of course, Rich, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and spending some of your time and sharing some of your vast knowledge. I feel like it would be apt to say that you've forgotten more than I probably even know at this point. And <laughs> that... I think you're calling me old, but that's I, okay. Well, okay. So moving on. And... <laughs> Where can people find out more about you? I mean, where are the multitude of ways that people could find out more about you and what you're doing, especially the Kickstarter that you're going to have coming up pretty soon? You can uh, certainly uh, find me on uh, Facebook. I do blog. I have a a blog that I am uh, currently entitled uh, uh, Baker's Field, formerly Atomic Dragon Battleship, but uh, I got a little tired of that (laughs) one, so I... So I'm going to try and, and make, put my name in the blog name somewhere so people know who they're actually looking for there. Those are my two big sources uh, if you want to you know, kind of keep up with what I'm, what I'm up to. But uh, as we're moving ahead towards uh, kickstarting our alternative game, I will certainly be keep an eye on SasquatchGameStudio.com, follow Sasquatch on Facebook, and we will certainly be shouting to everyone we know. Uh, that we're getting ready to start the Kickstarter. And those links will be in the show notes, so if you just want to easily find them, just look in the show notes, and those will be there for you to follow there. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's been uh, great oh, yeah. talking to yeah, you. Thank so you so much. much for coming on. We hope that we can do this once again sometime soon in the future, Rich. I'd be happy to come back. Well, that's all we have for you today on the Dungeon Masters block. Neil, if our listeners would like to get in touch with us, send us an email about sun, moon, and stars or whatever it is, anything related to DMing or just anything, whatever, who cares? Just send us an email. Where can they get in touch with us at? You can go ahead and send an email over at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And we are trying to catch up on our backlog a little bit and with some of the great emails that you guys have sent and try and help give some more advice through that medium. And if you want to help support us a little bit more, you can go ahead and head over to iTunes or whatever podcasting app or site that you use and give us a review so that more people can find out about us and hear the content that we provide. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can like our Facebook page. Both of those places are great to get updates about the show. We have a Patreon shout out of the week. And this week's Patreon shout out goes to... John Arcadian. Thank you so much, John. John is a bronze dragon, and he's also a game designer, and he ran for us at a catacon, a great terrasse game. So thank you for your support, John. We really, really appreciate it. The Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, and you should go over there and check out more shows on the network like GM Showcase, Geek Wars, and We're So Bad at Adventuring. And that's the episode. We are shutting down the computers. We're shutting off the mics. Not necessarily in that order, but that's it for this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all their people at the table. Good night, everyone. Keep on Dungeon Mastering. The most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all their people at the table. I really, I was trying to think of something, but I couldn't think of anything.
Because <laughs> I feel like I should have one, but I don't have one. <sighs> what could it? What could it be? Hurry, quick, um, brainstorm. I'm Neil, and my beard is waving for. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I tried to think of a beard one too. I'm Neil, and that's the deal. <laughs> Zip zap dooby da dap. <laughs> Just be like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that sounded so creepy. Like you didn't say it creepy. That's what I was going for. <laughs> I'm in your ear holes. Oh. <laughs> Give your bunch more choices. I'm just reading a cereal box now. <laughs> no, I, I I assumed as much. I just want to say, like, if all else fails, rocks fall, everyone dies. But <laughs> but I don't feel like that's great advice. <laughs> Oh, well, I'll come up with something next time. Goodbye.